Archiver, Kansas Vets Remember Vietnam, is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. In Vietnam, as almost anywhere, a request for medical assistance usually begins with a phone call. But here the first response is the whine and spin of a rotor. This is the first link in a chain of evacuation to ensure that every combat patient will be promptly transported to the clinical facility required for initial, definitive, or convalescent care. Specific locations of the injured are marked with flares. Many That's part of a 1967 Navy-produced film, one of probably hundreds shot in Vietnam by the military. Richard Schroeder was one of those links in medical care for wounded soldiers or Marines. There is a quiet current of honor and duty that runs through Schroeder's stories of his time in Vietnam. He may not be aware it is there. To Army Master Sergeant Schroeder, it is a given response. When one is asked to help, one steps up. I'm Katie Stover, and Schroeder is the second military medical veteran in this Archiver series, and unlike most doctors, nurses, and medics, he made the Army a career. Uh, I went, in, went into service uh, on uh, June 6, 1968, which uh, I always remember the entrance date because that was the anniversary of D-Day. So I, uh, I went to uh, Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri for basic. After that, I went to uh, San Antonio for uh, basic medical training and then to Fort Lewis, Washington for, for advanced medical training um, and then went to Vietnam. Schroeder was an Army medic stationed at the fire support base in Songbay Province, not far from the Cambodian border. Fire support bases were set up to provide artillery support for soldiers operating in the area. Schroeder spent almost two years in Vietnam with the 15th Medical Battalion attached to the 1st Cavalry. And you enlisted. You were not drafted. That's correct? I was not drafted. I, uh, when I came out of college, I knew I was, uh, uh, I was ripe for the draft. And in fact, I did get my draft notice, that, you know, report on a certain day. Uh, for induction. Well, the problem was that that day that I was supposed to report for inductions was the first day of the finals for my last semester. And I said, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, so I went up to the Army recruiter and uh, I enlisted as uh, for medic training. And so I bypassed. I took a 120-day delay so that I could uh, I was supposed to report for duty in j January, and uh, so I uh, I was put it off until June. You wanted uh, to finish your schooling of first. Sixty. I wanted to finish schooling first. Why did you choose uh, medic training? 
Well, my uh, undergraduate degree was in biology, and I felt that that was probably the closest thing to my field. Uh, however, I knew that <clears throat> being a medic was not the safest job in the world, especially in the Army, in the military. What did your family think of you enlisting? What were their reactions? Uh, well, my mother, I was the only, I, I was the only child. And uh, my father, who she had divorced some years before, uh, had been wounded uh, at uh, Battle of the Bulge. And, uh, but she was thought, well, you can get out because you're the only surviving son. I said, well, I'm not going to take that route. I felt it was my duty, per se. To, and so, um, and besides that, I had uh, always wanted to be in the military in one form or another. I would like to have been in the Air Force of the military as a pilot, but uh, that wasn't going to happen because I had glasses at the time. So, But anyway, I uh, ignored her protests and uh, went in. So everybody else, uh, I had two uncles. I had one uncle that was killed at, uh, in Korea. I had a couple of other uncles that had been in World War II. Uh, so we had a fair number of people uh, in our family that had been in military, prior military service. just ask you a little bit about your memories of first landing in Vietnam. Did you did you take a plane? Did you take a ship? Uh, yeah, no, we took a plane. In fact, it was uh, Jupiter Airlines, I think it was called. Or no, Saturn Airlines, Saturn Airlines. Now, about my first day in Vietnam, uh, they opened the door. It was nighttime when we got there. They opened the door, and the first thing that hit you was uh, the heat, humidity. It was tremendous. And uh, so that's the first thing that, uh, welcome to Vietnam type stuff. Uh, and we got off the plane and then we, uh, we got assigned be- uh, sleeping quarters for the night. And, but the first thing that I remember is that unbearable heat that hit us when they opened the doors to the plane. I think they took us to Benoit that night on buses and gave us our quarters. And then the next day, uh, we got assigned to our, uh, where we were going to be assigned. And that's when I found out I was going to be with the first calf. Air mobile operations are commonplace in the war in Vietnam. Helicopters used as transports, carrying men, weapons, and material, soaring easily over terrain obstacles that would have immobilized ground vehicles. Helicopters bombarding the enemy with rockets. Spraying him with high volume automatic weapons fire. Helicopters as aerial cavalry, swooping down from the skies to achieve the classic effects of speed and shock action, but with immensely more firepower than ground cavalry. 
me about the first calf. The first calf, uh, I should have brought something in. It's, uh, it has a reputation of having the biggest patch in the uh, Army's uh, uh, collection of patches. Of the arm it patches? Out, yeah, the arm patches that went on the shoulder. <laughs> uh, when I was first uh, first uh, told I was going to the first calf, uh, my reaction was, you got to be kidding me. I've got to jump out of a perfectly good air helicopter, you know, repel down a rope and all this. And uh, luckily I never did that. I never had to do it. They did teach me how to do it off of a 60-foot tower. But... Uh, I never had to do it because uh, I was back in the base camp. And uh, as I said, they were called the first team, and they always liked to be first everywhere. They were first in Manila. They were first in Korea. They were this and that. They always liked to be first. When we went into Cambodia, they put the uh, the tanks that uh, the uh, the B-52 struck Cambodia the night before, uh, the Cobra gunships, helicopters, went in and strafed and lost strafing. And then when they went in on the ground, they put the the armored unit under the operational control of the CAV. And so they were first in Cambodia. When asked to describe a typical day, Richard says no such thing exists. You could say that a regular day, there was no regular day because some days were very slow and very... Uh, monotonous, for lack of a better word. Other days were busy because we were getting wounded in and uh, KIAs, killed in action. And uh, as far as a regular day, now what, normally what we did was the day shift would come up about 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning. They'd come up to the treatment bunker and, and set up the treatment bunker in anticipation of wounded coming in. Uh, and then we... We sometimes would just sit around, uh, waiting for something to happen. One day we got word that uh, a Chinook, which is a big uh, double-bladed, uh, had a, uh, props on both ends of the helicopter. Uh, we call it banana copter. We also call it a few other things that's not printable here. Uh, um, uh, Huey could carry, oh, what, uh, could carry um, uh, four or five litter cases and maybe a couple of walking wounded. They put them in the, what they call the hell hole, which is right next to the gunners uh, on both sides of the helicopter. But a Chinook can carry a lot more. It's a much bigger helicopter. It can carry a lot more. Well, we got word that this Chinook was coming into the Chinook pad. We sent all our ambulances, our Jeeps, up to the Chinook pad to bring back the wounded. Well, this guy and I sitting in there, and we all of a sudden we hear this commotion outside, and we both look at each other because we know what it means. That Chinook is not going to the Chinook pad. It's going to land on our pad, which isn't designed for Chinook. And we run to the door, and we look out, and here's this Chinook land, uh, lining up on our Chinook, our little pad, and uh, trash cans were flying everywhere because of the downwash from the uh, rotors. Uh, the tents, uh, the supply tents and things like this, they were going like bellows going in and out because uh, it's the downwash. And he had about 20, I think, on the, on the pad. And uh, l luckily, when we get a, a large number like that, the cooks 
down in the mess hall, uh, the clerks in the other parts of the company area, they all responded. People off duty, uh, our medics that are off duty, they will come and just flock to the uh, treatment bunker to help with bringing the wounded in. Richard's go-to story about his time in Vietnam is a positive one that makes his weathered face break into a wide, craggy, joyful grin. It's a story about a real hero who he helped save. We had this one patient come in. It was uh, during a mass casualty situation. And this one man, uh, this one soldier, Spec 4, came in. And he had, his whole insides were exposed. His abdominal area is wide open. Uh, this one doctor uh, and I worked with him. I thought we'd lost him. I thought either he died while he was there or he... But uh, I'm, I've seen the doctor in the last three years at each of our medical reunions, medical company reunions. And uh, he said he told me uh, uh, three years ago, no, he didn't die. He survived. Uh, he lives in California now. But uh, I was told uh, this last week when I was at the reunion in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, that he had uh, been diagnosed with uh, with prostate cancer. So we don't know if, even if he's alive now, but he did survive. And uh, his name was John Baca. He was, uh, and he was awarded the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor. Wow, what did he do? He What he had done, the way he got wounded was... Uh, they were out on patrol. They had set up for the night, and they had set up booby traps. A couple of the booby traps went off, so they went out to investigate to find out whether, one, was it an animal that had tripped him or was it the enemy that had tripped him. And while he was out on patrol, uh, we were out to look, uh, investigate, uh, a hand grenade was thrown in, probably from these, uh, obviously from the enemy. And uh, John had... When he landed, he saw it. It was among him and his buddies. He threw his helmet on top of the uh, hand grenade and then threw himself on top of the helmet and uh, it detonated. And uh, and so uh, the doctor talks about, he's mentioned this several times to me, that he remembers reaching in and pulling out the uh, I should apologize for mess of goo nope. and pulling out the belt buckle of his uh, of his uh, web belt because it had been pushed in by the blast. But he did survive. And last year at our reunion at Branson, uh, Dr. Lundquist, and that was the doctor's name, he was only three years older than I was. No, four. Um, anyway, he brought a... Uh, what they call a Chinese corn medallion, if you will, uh, that John had sent to him to, to 
to give to me and to him because we were the ones that worked with worked on him uh, that day. Wow. Uh, it's uh, just a commemoration his of his Medal of Honor and the date he was wounded and all this. What a lovely gift! I, I wish I'd brought it with me. It was it's a beautiful piece of medallion. What a lovely way to honor honor you and Dr. Lundquist. Yeah. And that's that's beautiful. My, that must have been a very scary moment for you to see. Yeah, we, because uh, I can remember we uh, we had, uh, I forgot whether we used paper towels or whether we used uh, cloth, but we kept them moist because his intestines were exposed. And we were sh- shooting IV, uh, uh, IV fluids into him trying to, uh, there wasn't much we could do at our base because we weren't set up to do that. So we, uh, as soon as we got a, a medevac chopper in, we evac'd him out to the uh, one of the hospitals. But you, um, were, you were his first stop at saving his life. That was his first stop from the field. Richard turns thoughtful when asked what might have changed for him after Vietnam and offers his take on the outcome of the Vietnam War. I think that coming back from Vietnam, I was a little bit shorter tempered than I was before. Uh, I still am short tempered. Um, but uh, I don't think it changed me in a, in a drastic way. Um, it was a very maturing aspect of my life. Uh, one that I would not would not particularly want to to do again, if you know. But if if I got ordered to do it, I would do it. Now, uh, going back to that, uh, when Desert Storm occurred, I was still in reserves. I was on orders to go to uh, Kuwait uh, as a medic. Uh, <clears throat> my wife wasn't crazy about it. But, uh, and I had my duffel bag packed, but they revoked my orders, primarily because I, I think primarily was because uh, the, uh, I, was a medic, I was in nursing school at the time. Uh, I kind of regret now that I didn't go because a lot of my friends did go. Uh, first of all, the first cab was there, and I thought, when I realized the first cab was there, I said, darn, I could have gone and transferred over to him. But, uh, but as you know, it was a fairly short conflict. They did exactly what they should have done in Vietnam, in that they had a mission, they accomplished that mission, and uh, and then they, they left. Hmm. Uh, but in Vietnam's case, we weren't allowed to uh, accomplish our mission. The politicians were too interested in playing, in my way, my, think, my way of thinking. Uh, uh, they were more interested in playing a political war than a, a shooting war, if you will. Uh, I kind of bristle when I hear somebody say, "Well, we lost the war," and I say, "And I'll say we didn't lose the war, meaning the military. The politicians lost the war." Mm-hmm. 
while I was on base, I got, uh, I was awarded the combat medical badge, which is normally awarded to medics assigned to infantry units. And so when I was awarded that, I said, what is this? Why am I getting awarded this? I'm not a combat medic. And they said, no, you're in a combat zone. That was the, uh, so, but anyway, I proudly wear it on my uniform, which I could still get into. <laughs> That's an achievement. Uh, and uh, occasionally, it's, uh, it's call, I'm called on to wear it. And uh, but I probably wear that combat medical badge as well as the bronze star that I got for meritorious service. Basically, if you read my citation, it just says I was doing my job. And as our motto in the in the 15th Medic Battalion is, so that <coughs> so that others may live so that others may live. So, so that kind of explains our, uh, our whole responsibility over there. Richard Schroeder continued to serve his country, first in the Kansas National Guard and then the Army Reserve. Along with other veterans, he speaks regularly in the Kansas City area about his Vietnam War experiences in schools, senior centers, and ceremonies and programs honoring veterans. on Archiver, Kansas Vets Remember Vietnam, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Susan Bax from Tonganoxie is a rebel nurse with a cause. The only role Susan played by was keep the patient alive with the best care I can provide. All other rules and regs, those were negotiable. But I'll tell you the truth, I tried to do the Air Force, uh, come into the Air Force as a nurse, and I didn't pass their beauty board. Archiver is produced by Sam Zeff in conjunction with Do Good Productions, where Nancy Seelan is executive producer and with Matt Hodap at Fountain City Frequency. Archiver, Kansas Vets Remember Vietnam, is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. I'm Katie Stover, and I'll see you on the next Archiver. Archiver.